0: you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Malachi chapter 4. We'll be wrapping up our study of this book of the Bible. The last book of the Old Testament. The last prophet before the coming of Christ. Malachi chapter 4. we we'll be reading this whole chapter. This is the Word of God. For behold... lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray that he would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, we believe in your Holy Spirit. We believe in your Holy Spirit. And we believe that your Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts, in our minds to help us to understand what you would teach us. We pray that you would do that this morning, that we would be able to understand what your word has for us to know and how we should live because of that. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So our youngest, Milo, is a year and a half, and he's starting to speak words. You probably wouldn't be able to understand him if you don't hear him speak all the time. <laughs> Um, but we're trying to, as a result, teach him some concepts, and, and the, one of the earliest concepts we, we've tried to teach to him, and we try to teach all our kids, is that mom and dad will be right back. <laughs> Sometimes you got to step out of the room for a few minutes to go take care of something, and the child will be like, the world is ending. My parent is gone. I've been abandoned. I am now an orphan. <laughs> like, that's the reaction that they have to that, and so we have to teach them slowly but surely, We'll be right back. It might be five seconds, might be five minutes, but I will come back to get you. The grown-ups come back. Right, this is the same kind of thing that God is doing in the book of Malachi. He's been encouraging his people that he is at work. And if they will trust him, he will give them what they need. Right? And Malachi, as I said, is is the last book of the Old Testament. After this, there's hundreds of years of, of silence from God. No prophets sent to Israel before Christ comes. But in these words, the Lord is saying, I will be right back. I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'm bringing my righteousness. The God is at work in his righteousness coming through Jesus. And often when we think of righteousness, we think only of of doing the right thing. And that is part of it. But often in the Old Testament, when we we see the word righteousness, it carries with it this, this idea of justice, of making things right. And so, when we say that Jesus' coming righteousness gives hope to those who trust in him, we are looking not only for his, just, his, his faithfulness to come, of him doing what's right, but also of him making things right. And that's what we're going to see this morning that, that when Jesus comes, when he brings his righteousness, it involves making things right. It involves bringing justice, but it also involves doing what is right and faithfulness. We see here that this chapter just carries right over from the verse before. In Malachi, the end of chapter three, it says that once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him, right? This idea that God is going to come and he's going to make the difference between the righteous and the wicked apparent, and so he says, behold, the day is coming. like This day where God is going to intervene is coming. Sometimes when God comes and intervenes, it's an act of mercy. Sometimes when he comes and intervenes, it's an act of justice. But the day is coming. Later on, he says, it is the great and awesome day of the Lord. This, this final coming, this final judgment. He says, I am coming you think the, these people in, in, in earlier in the book have been questioning whether God is there, questioning whether God is, is going to do justice. And he says, I'm coming. The day is coming, burning like an oven, he says. This idea of burning and, and wrath and judgment is very common throughout the prophets, that God's wrath and, and judgment is like a burning, consuming fire. Zechariah chapter 14 says this. Even John the Baptist says this to the Pharisees. That God's coming is like a burning fire, an unquenchable one. But this burning like an oven is an interesting metaphor because a, an oven is not just like a wildfire that's set ablaze. It's, it's a very intentional, very specific place, right? An oven is not just for burning things, right? It's for burning things in a very specific way and burning very specific things. It's not just an, an open fire throughout the house, An oven has a very intentional, very precise target. And that's the metaphor he uses here, that his wrath is going to come burning like an oven. His wrath is not capricious, it's not arbitrary, it's not haphazard, it's not just random. Whoever seems to be nearby is going to get hit with it. He knows exactly what he's doing when he comes to judge and judgment. He does it specifically and precisely. But he also does it fully. It says that the, the wicked will be like stubble. This idea is like, it's like chaff, just little things that are going to be the absolute first things that will be totally consumed by fire. As it says in Psalm 1 that the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away, here he says they are like stubble when they'll be set ablaze. Have you ever been to a bonfire, set a bonfire? I love to be the one out there to set the bonfire and, and, and get it started. Uh, but you put a big log on the fire, and it kind of sits there for a little bit, and then it slowly catches fire, and then finally it's consumed, and it slowly burns its way down. That's not the image that's going on here. It's like when you take your napkin and you throw it on the bonfire, and it's like, and it's gone. That's the image of judgment that he has here for the wicked, that they're going to be totally, completely consumed immediately. He even goes on to say that I will leave neither root nor branch. This tree, it's not that it's chopped up and, you know, there's a little bit of root left over. No, this tree is going to be cut down, fully thrown onto the fire, and fully consumed. This idea of of the root nor the branch, he's talking about everything in between. Everything from the root to the branch, completely consumed. All of it. And later, he says that there, there could be, there will be a decree of utter destruction. This is the same language that's used when God sends the people of Israel into Canaan. He decrees that the entire group of people there should be destroyed. This is a possible outcome that could come to Israel, but for the coming of John the Baptist and Jesus as he promises. But this is what will happen, that this, this setting apart for judgment will happen, that these things will be left off limits except for God to be the judge and destroyer. And he includes the people of God in this. It's kind of interesting. He says, you shall tread over the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. And we can kind of read that and be like, oh, we're going to be kind of co-judges with God. That sounds kind of, I, I would love, I, I got some people that I would really like to judge. That's not the image here. The idea is, is that it's the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, right? He's the one who's acting. He's the one who's burning and destroying. But we get to, to enjoy and, and participate in that victory. They're already ashes, and we are just walking in the victory of God, that he has done the work, that he has judged, that he has brought his wrath. And that echoes what he says he will do in Isaiah 63, that he treads the winepress alone, right? He is the one treading. He is the one destroying. He is the one who who judges. We just share in his victory. And that's important because we can seek to be co-judges. We can seek to say, I know, God, what you're going to do. But that's the attitude of the arrogant. That's the very ones that he warns of here when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. And they're the targets, right? These are the people who say, God, I don't need you. Or God, I know better than you, and so I'm going to go and do my own thing. Because when we think that we don't need God and we become arrogant, then we go and do our own way and commit evil. And so the arrogant and the evildoers is almost a progression that if you say you don't need God, then you will demonstrate that with your life. And those are the ones that he says will be stubble. Because if you want to go your own way, God will let you. If you reject him, if you are not one who trusts in him, he is going to judge accordingly those who do not trust him, those who trust in themselves. And this is part of his answer to the critique he received earlier. That those who do evil receive no judgment. He says, no, you don't know what I have planned. You don't know what I have planned for those who reject me. And this idea of God's wrath can make us a little uncomfortable. It can make it, I, don't, I don't like thinking of God as, as the judge. I don't like thinking of God as the one who brings wrath. But the simple fact is that, that if God does not have wrath, then he does not have love. Because if you care for something, if you love something, if you hold something dear, then when that thing is threatened or broken or challenged or hurt, you will respond in anger. And we don't like that idea because often our love is broken as well. And so we respond in anger to the things that we love that we really shouldn't love in that way. But God loves perfectly, and so his wrath will come perfectly against those who have earned it, who have done evil, and who do not throw themselves upon his mercy. And so for Malachi's hearers, the word is that God is coming. And for those who trust in him, you will be safe. But if you don't, it will be a bad day of judgment." But for us, as we hear this, we can, we can say the same thing, that Jesus is returning. He will be right back. And it will be a bad day for those who look to themselves instead of looking to him. I don't know, parents, if you've had this experience where you tell your children to do, do something or to not do something over and over and over again, and then eventually they do the thing or they don't do the thing and it goes poorly. For example, just off the top of my head, running in the house on the hardwood floors with socks on. And then eventually they slip and fall and have to go to the ER and get eight stitches just off the top of my head. Sometimes we live our lives as if we've got it handled. We know what's going on. We know exactly what is happening. We don't need God to tell us, to direct us, to warn us. Sometimes we can even do that while we are here, doing church things. This church stuff can just become part of my plan for my life. It's to go to church, it's to participate in ministry, it's to give. But in our hearts, we are trusting ourselves and not God. Sometimes we can look out and we don't see things going the way we think they should go. The people who are doing wrong, who are doing evil, are getting away with it, and even being blessed. The people who are doing right, who hurt, whose hearts are in the right place, who are seeking goodness, are not being rewarded. But what do we do with that? We can look to God and trust, especially in those times. We can, we can lament the injustice that we see around us. And when we lament, we take that injustice, we take our questions, and we don't accuse God, but we go to God and say, God, why? I don't understand. Help me to understand. What's this gap between the way you think you say things are supposed to be and the way things are? And we can lament for the evildoers that they have in their hearts this, this bent towards injustice. We can lament for the victims. Maybe we can lament for ourselves as victims. Maybe we can pray for justice to come. We can pray that those who would seek to commit warfare against those who are innocent, that their bombs and their munitions and their equipment would blow up in their faces, that they would suffer the justice for their actions sooner rather than later. And we can rejoice when things are done that are just. That God's justice is enacted and we get to see it. Because whether we believe it or not, whether we live like it or not, Jesus' righteousness, his making of things right, is coming. And it's coming either to judge, to make things right, but also to do what's right. As he does that, leading his people in faithfulness in doing what is right. There's a contrasting promise here. If you read these, these verses, they almost go back and forth between the, the wicked and the righteous, and the wicked and the righteous, and those who fear God and those who don't. Back and forth. But here, just as he said, the day is coming, burning like an oven, he says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. This, this arrival is, is like a, a dawn, is the image here. The sun, S-U-N, is rising. And just as the sun rises and, and touches everything, so this sun of righteousness will rise and will, will touch everything, will shine everywhere, will cast out darkness wherever it is. Even as we read earlier from our assurance of pardon, this, this prophecy of Zechariah, the, the father of John the Baptist, who says, because of the tender mercy of God... The sunrise shall visit us from on high. Talking about this this messianic rival. The one who God is going to send will be like a sun who rises and shines on all people. And we know who this son of righteousness is. That he's the son of God, the one who is not only righteous in and of himself, Jesus who did what was right, but also the, the idea here is that this is a son that produces and, and creates righteousness in those who receive it. Those who are basking in the, in the light of this son will receive that healing, will receive righteousness, will, will start to do righteousness. This healing is not just a physical healing. Although we see when Christ comes, part of what he did was to physically heal. Is a physical reality that points to the spiritual reality of what he is doing. So this healing is physical and spiritual. The Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. See, Jesus, this Son of Righteousness, is God's fullest answer to our questions. Jesus, the Son of Righteousness, is God's fullest answer to the idea that there is injustice, that there is suffering and evil and sin. What are you doing about it, God? His answer is, I am sending the Son of Righteousness, the one who makes righteousness with healing in his wings. Jesus himself, in the book of John, says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you read any of John's gospel, he says this over and over again, this idea of light casting out darkness. But Jesus answers these questions. He answers the question of injustice. God, what are you doing about injustice? Well, first of all, I experienced it. As Jesus came to earth and he suffered grave injustice. He says, I am bringing all sin into judgment. As he promises here, as Jesus has promised, as John the Baptist promised, we saw in Matthew 3, as he promises in the book of Revelation, I am bringing judgment to sin. But not only that, I will wipe away every tear for those who have suffered injustice. And I will make all things right. And so when we say, God, what are you doing about evil? He says, I endured great evil, greater evil than, than, than any of you have endured, than, than I have endured, because he was perfect, and he suffered the criminal's death on a cross. He suffered great evil, and so he can understand, and, and not only that, but he overcame it, and he overcame that crucifixion, that he overcame death itself, and will one day undo all evil. He sends his spirit who is working against it in our own hearts. What is he doing about sin? Well, Christ himself was tempted, just as we are, yet without sin. So he can sympathize with our weaknesses. And he paid the penalty for it in his death. And indeed, he gives us his spirit so that we can more and more die to sin and live to righteousness. God, what are you doing about suffering? They want to talk about suffering. How about enduring without sin in a sinful world for 33 years and then being brutally whipped and beaten and carrying your cross, to have nails driven into your body, to die by suffocation? He can understand what it is to suffer. In fact, while he was here on earth, he relieved the suffering of many who were physically ill, whose loved ones had passed away, who felt out of place. He relieved their suffering. And, it, and now that he has ascended, he is going to prepare a place for us that will have no suffering. And so Paul says, for all the promises of God, find their yes in him. That is Jesus what is God doing about injustice and evil and sin and suffering? His answer is, my son, Jesus. That's what I am doing. In fact, his, his second coming will be the final answer to all of these questions. It's almost like if I were to say in this congregation, man, I just wish we had someone who had like some military experience around here. There is an obvious answer to that question. The answer to our questions about what is going on is Jesus. And the result, he says, is that, that you shall go out leaping like calves. When this day comes, you shall go out leaping like calves. This, the idea is, is these livestock that have been pinned in for a long time and just waiting to get out, and you open the gate, and they're jumping around, and they're leaping, and they're excited to be out in the sunrise. Maybe you've seen a dog that gets let out at first, and and on the internet they call them zoomies, where the dog just like zooms in circles and jumps up on stuff and just go like that kind of excitement and joy after being pinned in, being let out. The idea here is that the righteous, those who fear the Lord, have been pinned in and oppressed by the sin in the world and around them and in the people around them and even in their own hearts. But here, when this day comes, they will be set free. That's so why Paul can say the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly our adoption as sons. Maybe you know this oppression of evil. Maybe you feel the, the pain and the weight of living in a sinful, unjust world. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're like, I don't don't really understand that. That could be because you've just grown accustomed to the things of the world. Part of why we are here in this room together, why we are here in this body together, is to, to both remind each other of the brokenness of the world, but to point each other to the hope of Jesus in the midst of that. And so he says this day is coming, the sun of righteousness shall rise, and you shall go out leaping like calves. But he doesn't just leave us to sit on our hands until that day comes. He says, remember the law. We talked about this last week, that to remember is not just to, to, to remember in your head intellectually, but it's to, to recall what was said and to act on, on the basis of that. Just as God says he will remember his people, he, write, he writes a book of remembrance. He's asking them to remember the book that I have given you, to remember the Mosaic law, this, this Pentateuch that had both the things that he said for them to do, but also the stories of his salvation and his work in his people. And that, that, those five books that start the Bible are the, are the foundation for the rest of Scripture. Sometimes we can have this idea that, like, oh, that just happened a long time ago. Why do we even need that stuff anymore? But this is foundational, and it's still useful for us. As Paul says that all Scripture is breathed out by God, and is profitable for all kinds of things like teaching and reproof and and correction and training and righteousness, that that we as, as the people of God can be complete and mature. And so God's people should heed his words, not just because if they don't, they will suffer. No, instead they should heed his words because they trust him, because he has done good for them, because he has, has fulfilled his promises, and he is making a promise here. They can demonstrate that they believe him by listening to his words, by hoping in what is to come. John, in, in his first letter, says this hope has a, a sanctifying effect. Just, just the act of hoping can purify us, can, can take away uh, some of our, our sin as we, as we look to God and trust in Him more and more. We can be sanctified by that. He says, we know that when He, that is Christ, appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is, and everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as Jesus is pure. Just the act of, of, of trusting in God focuses us on Him and, and, and results in worship. As we say, God, you have it together. We don't have it together. We don't know. We're not sure what's happening, but you do. And we don't turn inward to what we think is right and our desires, but we, we turn to God and what he wants for us. When I had to take my child to get stitches this week, as I mentioned earlier, <laughs> I, just just like talking about stitches kind of gives me that little twinge in the back of my head. I'm like, I don't like, I don't like that, right? broken bones and all that kind of stuff. But I'm sitting there in the room as the doctor is actively stitching parts of flesh together. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm here. This is fine. No problem. Because I'm focused on, on my child and what he needs and what is happening there. In a similar way, when we focus on God, he can get us out of our own heads. It can distract us or turn us away from the things that would take us, our attention from God. And so we are to remember the law, but also God says, I will send you Elijah. Many people point to this passage as the reason why, why John the Baptist has the spirit of Elijah, and that, and that is true. John the Baptist in part fulfills this promise that God will send Elijah, but Elijah uh, throughout the Old Testament and, and into the New Testament sort of stands in for all the prophets. So when he says, I will send you Elijah, he's not saying literally Elijah, He's not saying Elijah's uh, reincarnation. He's saying, I will send to you a prophet. I will send to you this prophet who will give you my words. And John did that. We saw that earlier in Matthew 3. But also, he says that this prophet will turn the hearts of the people, father to son, and son, father. We don't see that happening in John. But we do see it start to happen. And we see Jesus' work happening as more and more people are turned to each other. And so there's an end times, an eschatological bent to this, that this is an ongoing work that God is turning the hearts of his people to each other. And Christ himself is the ultimate prophet. When we see that when Christ's righteousness comes, it results in right relationships. Right? When, when, when we experience the righteousness of Jesus, when we see it at work in our lives, when we lean on him for salvation and trust in him, the hearts of fathers and children are turned towards each other. This is this knitting together, this mutual love, this looking to each other. See, often our wayward hearts manifest themselves in relational sin. Oftentimes, when when sin is present in our hearts, when we are trusting in something other than God, when we are, are leaning on our own understanding, that results in sin in our relationships. That's why so much of the law is devoted to how we are to treat each other. That's why when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He gives it to love the Lord God with all your heart and soul and might. But then he says the second is like it. He immediately ties them together to love your neighbor as yourself. Because he knows that when we are out of accord with God, when our hearts are wayward, we're going to be out of accord with those around us. But here he promises that one day there's a prophet coming who will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. That is the promise So what do we do with this? What do we do the fact that that Jesus is coming again, that he is returning and he is going to bring judgment and justice, but he is also going to bring faithfulness? We, We can think about this by answering the question, what are you looking forward to happening? What are you looking forward to happening? Maybe it's a life event that's coming up. Maybe it's uh, being able to achieve something at work. Maybe it's uh, the, being able to, to go on that vacation or to do that thing. None of those things are bad, by the way. But what we should be most excited for, what we should most be hoping for, what we should most be looking for is, is the coming of Christ's righteousness in our hearts. To see that working itself out in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Right? I'm so excited for my kids to grow up. <laughs> Right? I've seen them learning new things and doing new things. We just had Ransom's kindergarten graduation. It was so it was fun to see all that kind of stuff. But man, I certainly hope that what I want for them most is not all those kinds of cool things to happen. But that what I want for them most is that Jesus is made real in their hearts. That his righteousness floods them through the power of his spirit, that they know him and that they trust in him. Just as the, the people in Malachi's day... Are anticipating the Messiah to come for the first time, we should be looking forward to the Messiah's coming the second time. And in the meantime, trusting him and looking for his righteousness to work itself out in our hearts and in the hearts of those around us. Because the same Holy Spirit that gave Elijah his power is in our hearts. And we are called to proclaim his truth and to obey his truth until he returns We should be constantly reminding each other that God is at work in us and that He will make all things right. i want to close by reading a section of Psalm 96 that, that kind of highlights this. This is a psalm that would have been sung among God's people, but highlights this idea of pointing to God's truth in His coming. It says, Say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the people's with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills in it and let the field exult and everything in it. That's that image of creation being freed from its groaning. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world and righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. We look to you, Father. We look to you for all that we need. We look to you for we can't trust ourselves. We try to. We try to trust the things around us. We try to trust each other, but we always come up short. And so we look to you as the one who never fails, as the one whose promises are always true, as the one whose love is steadfast. Help us to look to you, to look forward to the work that you are doing to bring justice, to bring faithfulness, to bring righteousness in your creation. Help us, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you-